Welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 14 Body Work On a morning that was unusually warm for a May 24th weekend, Gunther Dickerbach chopped some firewood by the side of Sunko Lake and then climbed up the 34 switchback steps to his cottage, an imposing A-frame building that clung to the edge of the rock face like a piece of a glacier just before calving into the sea. When he reached the top of the stairs, he poured his own imposing O-frame onto the long-suffering couch in his living room, burped once loudly, and was still. Some time later, when he failed to respond to his wife's gentle entreaties to get your fat ass into breakfast, someone in the family wondered if Gunther might be in distress. This turned out to be an understatement. The distress was cardiac in nature, and Gunther, it appeared, was a goner. Gunther's death was confirmed by a vacationing M.D. who was summoned from his dock a few cottages away. As he moved in the last twenty minutes? He hadn't. Call the undertaker. And the doctor went back to his dock. A phone call was made to Daggett's funeral home in Thornside. Chuck Gibbons and his sidekick, Ross Much, were dispatched, with a bag and a stretcher to go and fetch what was left of Gunther. They would shortly discover that there was quite a bit. Stunko Lake was an aneurysm in the Thorn River, about thirty minutes southeast of Thornside. In an aerial photograph, it resembled the human stomach between the esophagus and the small intestine. Because of its murky water and shallow, mucky, weedy bottom, the lake was used mainly by fishermen and jet skiers, an uneasy alliance of water sports that occasionally erupted into beer-soaked confrontations, especially on holiday weekends, when the employees of the cement block factory and nearby Burlap Forks were off work. The shoreline had been desecrated in the 1970s by cottagers who built walls and docks in failed attempts to make their properties look like the beachfronts they had seen on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The only more or less unspoiled part of the lake was the north end, where the normally brown, scummy waves became blue and clear. Trees air-kissed the shore as they waved in the wind, and rock cliffs rose high and forbidding above the water. The Dickerbach cottage was perched on top of one of the highest cliffs. Google Maps show that roads at the north end of Stunko Lake were little more than bulldozed paths. In the spring, so soon after the snow had melted, they would be nearly impassable. Ross and Chuck decided that the fastest way to get to the Dickerbach place would be across the water. After half an hour's drive in the hearse on county roads badly potholed by winter, they arrived at the Heinz Marina, boats and baits, and looked for someone to take them over the lake to the cottage. His name is Gunther, Bert Heinz, the driver of the large mahogany water taxi, bellowed at Chuck as they slammed through the waves. But everybody calls him Gunt. Calls him a what? Chuck wasn't sure he'd heard correctly over the roar of the boat's inboard motor. Gunt! the driver shouted gleefully. Gunt? 
You mean to rhyme with, yeah, runt, but he ain't. The noise of the motor discouraged more conversation, so Chuck sat watching the water rush past and thinking about the last couple of months. Lots of changes. There was the thing with the litter and the guy down the road, Butch. That day with Butch turned out to be an important one, more important than just a dumb conversation over some coffee cups. Butch would never know that it was their little skirmish that had finally motivated Chuck to stop drinking. It was funny, really. Of all the prompts he'd had over the years to quit, the one that pushed him over the line, the one where everything finally clicked into place, was a run-in with some minor littering thug. It didn't make sense, but it worked, and that was enough. He wasn't about to question any of it too much. Chuck was never much of a group joiner, and he knew he wasn't any good at accepting help or advice from people. He hadn't gone to any alcoholic meetings or anything. But one evening, when he noticed the restless feeling trying to return, he called an old friend in the city who had been where he was now. The friend talked with him a while, and then emailed Chuck a list that he'd written. The kind of list that could only be written by an ex-drinker. The words helped a bit. Chuck printed it off and stuck it to his fridge. Ten Sober Thoughts 1. You don't automatically leap out of bed feeling terrific every morning. You've forgotten this, but waking up is hard to do, even if you're not hungover. 2. If you were forgetful and absent-minded as a drinker, you'll probably be the same way sober. If your boss or your clients thought you were an idiot before, they will most likely still think you're an idiot. You just won't have alcohol to blame. So find a new boss. Find new clients. Nobody should work for anybody who thinks they're an idiot. 3. You won't feel all that much better right away. Some, but not as much as you thought you were going to. Quitting drinking does not automatically turn you into the big carrot of health. It just gets you to where other people already are. And you don't see them doing cartwheels all day. 4. Very few people will openly applaud your efforts. It's not like you're quitting smoking. People will fall all over themselves to help people quit smoking. But if you tell your friends you've quit drinking, they'll express nothing but snarky skepticism. People have little patience for people who can't control themselves around liquor. They see it as a character failing. Even if they say they don't, they do. Hence, the anonymous part of AA. 5. Your personal, monetary, and relationship problems won't vanish. Think of the word sober as an acronym for son of a bitch, everything's real. 6. If nothing else, alcohol made a nice temporary anesthetic, and you'll miss that. For short-term relief of life pain, Diet Pepsi doesn't even come close. The liquor bottle is a lovely place to hide. Outside it, you'll feel exposed, unprotected, and alone. Be prepared for it. Things are going to hurt. 7. You'll find you have more money. Whether you used to spend $10 or $100 on booze, that money will still be in your pocket at the end of the day. The problem is you can't think of anything else to spend it on. 8. In the long run, you'll stop asking yourself, Why me? You'll cease wondering why you can't just drink socially, like all your friends, why you had to stop completely instead of just cutting down. 
To many others, alcohol is a social activity, a relaxation aid, a welcome treat at the end of the day, even a needed crutch in times of stress. To you, alcohol is an insidious enemy disguised as all of the above. No, it isn't fair. 9. You'll come to terms with a whole new identity, maybe new friends and lovers, too. Some of your old friends will remain, and some will fall by the wayside, unable to understand why you had to change. Remind yourself that it is you who have left them behind, not the other way around. 10. You'll learn that when you're not drinking, you're not necessarily richer, happier, sexier, or better adjusted. You're just sober. You're still not totally in control of your life, but you're more in control than you were. This should be your only aim at the beginning. If that one goal isn't enough for you to start with, then your road is going to be much longer than it has to be. Overall, quitting had turned out to be easier than Chuck had thought, although along the way he'd developed a monster craving for butterscotch ripple ice cream. He used to run to work off the beer calories, one kilometer per beer. Now it was ice cream, one kilometer per scoop. It seemed there would always be another kind of compulsion in his life. He just hoped he wouldn't get into too much trouble by eating ice cream. He hadn't seen or heard from Butch ever since that morning, but there had been no more coffee cups, at least none in the ditch. The lopsided mobile home on the far side of the island showed no evidence that anyone was living there anymore, and the late spring weeds were beginning to overrun the property. One day, as he was running past, Chuck noticed a sign hammered into the rocky ground with hand-painted red letters and dried paint drips running down from each one. For sale by Onwer. As the roar of the onboard motor lulled him, Chuck drifted away again and thought about his mother, an activity he was convinced he did not do often enough, and wondered what she would make of his new sober lifestyle, if she were still around. Before Chuck was born, Sonny Gibbons spent six years as a character on a popular CBC children's show called Banana Peels. For those golden seasons, she was recognizable wherever she went, and her personal appearances often caused near-rioting among her little fans. After the show ended, obscurity followed quickly and brutally, as it can do if the brass ring is no longer in reach when the merry-go-round stops. As more days and months passed, and the realization dawned on her that her shot at success in life had passed away and another one would not be along, achieving numbness became more important to her than anything else. Chuck was conceived in a vortex of alcohol and painkillers during a night with a guy whose name Sonny never remembered. Amazingly, she managed to clean up for most of the pregnancy and for about three weeks afterward. At the time, she could still do this if she really wanted to. She had a few friends left who would help her through the tough spots, so Chuck was passed from hand to hand and survived as a content but quiet little boy. As he approached school age, Sonny's friends grew annoyed and then frustrated with her, and one by one, they melted away like icicles. Over the years, Sonny tried more restarts and reinventions than Chuck could remember. They were forgettable because of their sameness, which made each one blend in with the others. She would get an idea, teaching music at a community college, entertaining children in groups after school, organizing a reunion tour of the children's performers she had worked with, 
and she'd be off flying high. The grand visions for the future were usually supported by some man Sonny had met at a bar and brought home. They always began with a massive house-cleaning and decluttering, and long dialogues into the night about all the things they were going to do to make her famous again. Chuck would listen to these conversations as he lay in bed, over the years becoming less and less excited by them, until all they meant to him was a pile of half-empty pizza boxes and a collection of dead beer bottles on every horizontal surface of the house the next morning, which he would clean up. The man at the Max Milk on the corner, who either didn't notice or didn't care that Chuck was underage for just about everything, gave him two cents for each of the beer bottles. Sonny and her unwitting partner of the day would strategize and organize, sometimes even getting flyers made or letters written. The letters never got sent, and the flyers never got distributed. The partner would inevitably get bored and leave, and Sonny would set to work getting numb again. Chuck would throw the flyers into the blue recycling bin. During one of these episodes, there was an overstuffed sofa in the living room of one of the houses they rented. His mother decided it was depressing and had to go out to the curb, so she and the current male companion, who had arrived with a case of Steeler to help with the chore, several of which they drank right away to get up the energy for the task, wrestled it to the front door. When they tried to get it through the doorway, breaking the glass on the screen door as they crashed into it, the thing became stuck. They shoved it up, pulled it down, angled and twisted it this way and that. Nothing worked. The harder they pushed, the more hopelessly jammed it got. At some point, a lot of yelling happened. Chuck could see the problem right away and knew what they had to do to the sofa to get it through. But his mother's assistant, a walking advertisement for the importance of using a tattoo artist who could spell, didn't look like the kind of guy who would take kindly to advice from a ten-year-old kid, so Chuck kept quiet. Eventually the sofa was wedged in so tight that Sonny and her companion, whose name turned out to be Steve, as so many of them seemed to, decided to take a break, have a beer, and think about the problem. And that was the end of that project for the day. The door was the only way in or out of the house, so Chuck had to climb over the sofa when Steve sent him to the Max Milk to get cigarettes. He was beyond wondering what the neighbors would think when they saw the mess. The next morning, before his mother and Steve were conscious, Chuck went to the front door and carefully unscrewed the feet from the base of the sofa. He gave it a soft push, and it fell out onto the front lawn with a quiet thump. He then screwed the feet back on, swept up the shards of broken glass, closed the door, and went inside to clean up the red plastic beer cups and the bottles. "'Must have fallen out on her own overnight,' declared Steve when he and Sonny emerged from her room several hours later, rubbing their bloodshot eyes. "'See? I told you she'd go!' Sonny's problems always seemed to be smaller and fewer when she was just with Chuck and there were no men around. She would call the two of them the dynamic duo, and tell him that together they could do anything. He knew she kept on believing this for a long time after he had stopped. If I could just keep her to myself, he'd think, everything would be okay. And when everything was okay, life seemed to work for Sonny and Chuck. On the rare occasions when he was invited to a neighborhood birthday party, she always sent him cleaned up and well-dressed, carrying a present that turned out to be the most thoughtful and creative one of them all. 
The time she made it to his school functions, she arrived looking as proud as all the other proud moms, if a little more frowsy, a little more weather-beaten, a little more in need of having her hair color touched up. Several times she volunteered to help the elementary children with their reading, and once she showed up. Yet her good heart was not enough to save her, while she sank beneath the weight of sheer humanness. By the time Chuck was twelve, they'd lived in fourteen different places, chased out of some of them by the angry landlords, sneaking out to escape the angry landlords in others. As Chuck went through adolescence, her overdoses and blackouts and the subsequent apologies and vows of renaissance became more frequent. By the time he was finished high school, there was not a lot left of the dynamic duo. Sonny had become a raspy-voiced shell, a wasteland of addiction, hope abandoned, rambling with unintelligible regrets of bitterness. There was little doubt as to her ultimate fate. He decided to become a paramedic after he'd made one of his regular calls to 911 to deal with an overdose episode and had gotten chatting with one of the EMTs who had come to take her to the hospital. Imagine, he thought, knowing just what to do in a case like this. Imagine knowing how to help her. She died while Chuck was taking the primary care paramedic program at Community College. The only thing she left behind was the collection of Nancy Drew mysteries that she'd carted around with her since childhood. Chuck tried not to think about what dreams those books had kindled in his mother's very young mind, or what had happened to those childish dreams. But he read every book and kept them, too, as a link to someone he could never help, but always wished he could have. Climbing out of the boat at the Dickerbach cottage, they saw a steep ramp at the onshore end of the dock that led to several flights of stairs zigzagging their way upward through the trees, like Jack's beanstalk, to the cottage at the top. Chuck and Ross left Bert Hines and his boat at the dock and started to climb, hauling the stretcher between them. When they arrived at the top of the stairs, red-faced and gasping for breath, they took a look at Gunther, and Ross said, Holy Mary, how the hell are we going to... Then he noticed Gunther's wife standing by the window. Gunt had not been a small man in life, and this had not changed after he left it. He spilled off the sides of the couch like still-rising pizza dough on a too-small plate. Are you, um... The wife? asked Ross, remembering to sound funereal only toward the end of his question, so that the last two words were lower by at least an octave. Not any more, she said brightly. Gunt's wife was as tiny as he was huge. Chuck took a moment to picture how the marriage had worked logistically. The prospect of widowhood seemed to intrigue rather than distress her. She looked over at Gunt's form on the couch and said in the special tone that wives reserve for their husbands, generally while they are alive, Jesus Christ, Gunt, I told you when we bought the place those goddamn stairs would kick your ass. The undertaker's body bag had been forgotten in the boat below, and no one seemed inclined to go and fetch it. So Gunt was strapped to the stretcher, draped in a bright orange blanket that covered about half of him. Then the question arose of how to get him down the zigzag stairs and aboard the water taxi. Lifting the stretcher onto their shoulders was out of the question. Suggestions such as perching him on the top step and simply pushing were not articulated out loud. While they were standing on the deck of the cottage trying to decide what to do, 
Chuck got the feeling, strangely familiar, that Mrs. Dickerbock was silently flirting with him. This happened from time to time, although not usually with women whose husbands had just dropped dead. He sometimes wondered if he had an aura, like an invisible sign over his head that invited women to take the initiative with him. Maybe it was because he usually took so little of it himself. Chuck had decided he was undersexed when he compared himself with his friends. It was a well-known fact that to be a male between fifteen and forty, you had to think about sex every few minutes and talk about it even more often, even if the chance to act on it occurred less often. Contrary to what he'd heard from his friends about the way sexual lust was supposed to work, he wasn't able to muster up much energy for someone who didn't seem interested in him at the same time. He knew this made him less aggressive and therefore less desirable as a potential mate, so even though he'd been told he was not bad-looking, he was deficient in the experience tally. He had no problem dealing with men on an equal footing, but he was always a bit deferential when it came to women. There were girlfriends at intervals, but not a lot of purely recreational episodes. He wondered if he was lacking something in the approach pattern, something other men had. Maybe they'd all gotten some kind of instruction from their parents that gave them more confidence. The only advice his mother had ever given him about sex regarded kissing, supplied before his first high school dance. "'You're a man,' she'd wheezed at him through a cloud of export A smoke. "'So you'll feel you have to start it off. A kiss,' she took a long drag, "'is like starting a conversation. You gotta be sensitive, pay attention to what she's telling you. A lazy kiss says, "'Thanks for coming out. She's not saying no, but you're not welcome either.' Don't bother coming back. Some women will throw you off using only their lips. They pucker them till you got a retreat. You'll know from her kiss she doesn't want any more, so don't wait to be told twice. Chuck thought this was a lot of responsibility to put on a girl, all that communication. But when the right kiss comes along, you'll know it in an instant. And here's the most important thing. A kiss can leave you cold or it can leave you breathless. Always hold out for the breathless. The lecture ended with a spasm of coughing. When Chuck looked back on his mother's advice, he knew one thing for certain. In his whole life, he had never been left breathless by a kiss. Ultimately, Chuck and Ross decided to slide the stretcher, with the wheels of the undercarriage folded up and the orange-swaddled Gunther strapped to it, down the stairs to the dock. A rope was attached so they could control the descent from behind as Gunt went bumping over the stairs, looking like a pumpkin float in a parade over a cobblestone road. And down they went. Whenever the long convoy reached one of the corners of the switchback stairway, they had to stand Gunt up on end to get him around, but otherwise it worked better than they had hoped. Until the stretcher reached the steep ramp just above the dock, and the wheels finally found a surface they could roll on. To tandem cries of, Oh, shit! The rope tore out of the hands of Chuck and Ross, and the stretcher picked up speed as it hurtled down the ramp toward the lake. Gunt went shooting off the end of the dock, was briefly airborne, and hit the water with a splash, sending waves in all directions, some of which nearly swamped a passing canoe and its startled occupants. And for once, in this world or the next, Gunther Dickerbock's lifelong mission to accumulate blubber on his body worked to his benefit.
He wouldn't have sunk if they'd dropped an anchor onto his chest. He, his stretcher, and his orange blanket bobbed around like a channel marker boy. Chuck and Ross dove into the water and eventually tugboated the whole flotilla back to the dock. The dripping corpse was somehow sponged off and manhandled into the undertaker's body bag and on to the water taxi. After some coaxing, they persuaded Gunt's wife to ride with him. She sat beside the body bag, avoiding looking at it as one might try to ignore a stranger on a bus who's talking to himself. As they pulled away in the boat, Chuck thought he saw her raise a hand and salute to the cottage, but it may have just been the action of the waves. Some days later, Chuck, in his funeral home suit, found himself at Gunther Dickerbach's funeral, looking idly across at the choir of St. Ninian's Church. He and Ross Much had moved themselves up to the foot of the chancel steps near the large casket in preparation for coaxing it into its final trip down the aisle. As the service droned to a close, he was daydreaming a bit, when his eyes alighted on a small woman in the front row of the choir. He wasn't sure why he was looking at her so intently. He thought he might have seen her somewhere before, at another funeral or a visitation maybe, although he rarely remembered the host of black-clad attendees from one day to the next. She was pretty in a sort of accidental way, but looked quite a bit older and had probably been married forever. When the choir stood to sing the final hymn, he couldn't see what the rest of her looked like because of the gown that seemed to envelop her. He realized he was staring when she met his eye and traded looks with him, smiling. He smiled back. Perhaps it was that one mutual glance that made her seem to him everything that Judith had not been. Her face was round, where Judith's was angular, soft, where Judith's was firm, welcoming, where Judith's was less welcoming. Judith Pinning had been his girlfriend, the only long-term one he'd ever had, until just recently when she'd broken up with him. He'd been thinking he should think about what he thought about the breakup. Judith worked as the receptionist and bookkeeper for Daggett's. When required, she also played the little electric organ in the chapel. She didn't really consider herself an organist, she told people, but someone had to do it. Besides, she only had to know a half-dozen pieces or so, and could play them over and over again. It wasn't as if the funeral home had weekly regulars like a church did. Chuck was never really sure why she chose him to be her boyfriend, but it was nice to have some female company, someone to talk to other than Ross. They went out together for over two years, from shortly after Chuck had started working for Daggett's. Going out together was a bit inaccurate. Mostly, they just watched TV at her place, but sometimes they would go to a movie at the Acorn Theatre, the only cinema in town. They went whenever there was a romantic comedy playing because Judith liked those. Whether it was the romance part or the comedy part, he was never sure. She didn't seem outwardly affected by either. When they weren't watching movies or TV, they didn't talk much, except about the weather and people Judith didn't like. Chuck wasn't sure what else they would talk about in any case. Her gaze sort of wandered over his right shoulder if he ever mentioned his love of running, and he would never have thought to discuss a thing like his confrontation with Butch. All the same, they were mostly comfortable with one another, even not talking. He never thought much about Judith's physical looks. If asked, he would have said she was small and slim, with short dark hair, and had piercing gray eyes that always made him feel a bit nervous if he looked right at them. 
She had very pale, tissue-paper-thin skin. Chuck sometimes felt he could see right through her. She avoided the sun at all costs, so her complexion was a bit like the underside of a lake trout. Once a week or so, they spent their lunch break together, if Chuck didn't have to make a pickup or Judith didn't have to play a visitation. They had the lunch date down to a routine. Chuck would get to the restaurant about ten minutes early to make sure they got a table, and then he would wait there watching the door till he saw her walk in. She had a charming quirk about arriving at places. She hated to be the first one to get anywhere, so she was often late. When she arrived, she would always take the time to chat with people before she finally made her way to where Chuck was waiting at their table. Although this made her even later, he admired how wonderfully social she was. As a shy guy, he was the opposite. She would stop to chat with people as they left, too, sometimes handing him her purse to hold while she chatted. Chuck felt odd doing this, but was glad to help. He could see how awkward it must be to have a conversation with people when holding a purse. Of all the people he knew, she alone addressed him as Charles. Although they were probably about the same age, she always seemed much older. The tone of her speech sometimes made him think of a maiden aunt speaking to a teenage nephew. But in a good way. My goodness, you certainly do cut the lawn in straight lines, she'd say after he'd cut the lawn in front of Daggett's. Well done, Charles. Keep up the good work. Judith rarely spoke about her past, but Chuck decided she must have been brought up in a very classy family, because her conversation never included any topic that couldn't be tastefully discussed in a funeral home parlor. This made her an asset at visitations and receptions, where she would always say the right thing. Saying the right thing was important to Judith. If Chuck ever let slip a wrong thing, he swore he could see the invisible strings tighten, pulling her lips into a purse shape. He respected those restrictions. In addition, it was good discipline for him to try to shield her from some of the more earthy graveyard humor that floated around the funeral home, especially between him and Ross Much. It was Ross who had started the practice of calling Daggett's shiny black hearse the Chuck Wagon. This term was adopted by the cleaning staff and even Bruce Stafford, the apprentice undertaker. Chuck felt Judith should not be subjected to this kind of disrespectful banter. She had a silent but intense way of disapproving of his drinking, which Chuck thought was probably a good thing, all things considered. She helpfully pointed out whenever his intake exceeded two beers in a given sitting. She told him once that she thought the world would be a better place if no one drank alcohol. She herself was partial to water. Their physical relationship got off to a slow start, the main reason being that Chuck actually wasn't sure how to get going. They always went to her place, rather than his. Oh, no, Charles, she'd said when he once suggested she visit him on the island, which pretty well settled that, and this may have thrown him off a bit. One night, when they were sitting on the sofa in her living room, watching a rerun of the Big Bang Theory, he draped his arm over her shoulder and carefully placed a cupped hand on her heavy tweed blazer, over the place about where he thought her right breast would be. For a brief moment, he could almost feel it, or at least the luxuriously quilted bra that cradled it. She didn't react one way or the other, so he left his hand there for a while, before taking it away to get a pull from his beer. While she was fast-forwarding through a commercial, he asked her quietly if she'd been expecting him to be more amorous. She smiled in a way that gently but firmly confirmed she would never have let him.
Now there's a woman, he thought, who knows her own boundaries and is comfortable in her own skin. Chuck respected her rules, and thought she probably respected him for that. Until one evening, when she came to him with several buttons undone that were normally done up. I assume you know what to do, she said. Normally Chuck would have, but on this occasion he was so surprised it took him a while to get everything right. We should do this again, declared Judith afterward, straightening her hair and looking at him as if trying to remember who he was and how he'd gotten in. It does clear the sinuses. They established a regular session for the purpose. During their encounters, Judith was almost unnaturally silent and focused, generally producing one resonant but unmusical sound toward the end, like an owl that had gotten its wing caught in something. This informed Chuck that the event was nearly over, and he could go home soon. In one slight departure from the norm, he appeared at her place once after having been out running for an hour, and she insisted he have a shower before coming near her. I could join you, Charles, she said in a tone that was almost coy, although not really. The mood of the occasion was tempered somewhat by the fact that Judith was wearing her shower cap when she stepped under the water with him. But she did give him a good scrub-down, one that left him pink and tingling all over for the rest of the day. The funny thing was, after Chuck quit drinking, Judith seemed to tire of him. Although she congratulated him when he told her, "'Well done, Charles. Keep up the good work.' It was almost as if she missed having that part of him to disapprove of. Whatever the reason, shortly afterward she announced she was quitting the funeral home and leaving town. She said she'd had enough of playing the organ and doing the books at Daggett's, and was moving to the city to start what she called a real life. "'Should we keep in touch?' Chuck asked. "'I wouldn't think so,' she replied, as if he'd asked her to play the beer-barrel polka at a Quaker funeral. He got the impression she'd be looking to meet more sophisticated men when she got to the city. She'd often complained that he wasn't like the sort of deep, thoughtful person she was used to being attracted to. The convergence of our mutual Venn diagram has been reduced to a sliver, she said. Chuck looked at her. You are artless, Charles, said Judith, with an expression of what might have been pity. I don't know what that word means, said Chuck. Precisely, said Judith. Chuck stared across the chancel at the small, pretty choir woman with the kind face and welcoming smile. He was so lost in reverie that Ross Much had to nudge him in the ribs to get his attention so they could help guide the casket down the aisle. This was especially important, as they didn't want any more mishaps with the deceased mortal remains. It was time to get him safely into his grave, where he could cause them no further trouble. Gunt's large extended family had insisted on a large Anglican funeral and sung mass, bypassing the gentle protests of his widow, who was overheard muttering she wished he'd sunk head first into the muck at the end of the dock and stayed there. When the family first started attending St. Ninian's, there were a few raised thornside eyebrows at the idea of a family named Dickerbach joining anything but the Lutheran congregation over on Maisie Street. It turned out that Grandfather Dickerbach had been a German POW near Colchester in Essex for most of World War II, and had stayed on in England afterward, immigrating to Canada and becoming a citizen some years later. Now the family were proud members of the St. Ninian's Parish. It was obvious, however, 
that Gunt had been admired and respected in the community. A large crowd of well-wishers gathered, many of whom stared sympathetically at the family members who had to muscle his considerable earthly remains in and out of the hearse. Word had gotten out about his misadventure at the end of the dock, and someone had sent a large wreath to the church with a sash that said, Bon Voyage. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. Music